I talked about the word lament. Lament is a very biblical term for mourning. And the word lament means sorrow rooted in hope. So it's acknowledging hurt. It's, it's acknowledging the grief that we're going through, but it's not blindly going through it. It's acknowledging that there's hope still, that God is still working despite the circumstances. And so we spent some time lamenting last week and just asking God to bring healing to us. We cannot rebuild as a church on a cracked or broken foundation. And so as we continue on this week and we continue to look on, on to Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, I want to make it clear that if there's still something going on in your heart, some healing that needs to take place, uh, very often the Spirit will kind of stir something in your soul. Uh, and when you feel that stirring, very often it's scary. And so we don't want to acknowledge it. We're, we want to pretend like it's us or we're just kind of trying to overthink things or whatever. But very often that's the Spirit working in our heart. And we need to make sure that we're obedient to that, that we're hearing the Spirit and we're, we're listening to what the Spirit's telling us. So I just wanted to throw uh, just a, another word this week as we start off, that if God stirred something in your heart last week and you didn't bring it out, you didn't discuss it, or you just kind of shoved it back down, don't keep shoving it back down. Talk it through. Bring it up with myself. Bring it up with Sarah or Frank or uh, Rebecca or Amber, just somebody. You know, somebody you trust in this church, just say, hey, listen, I got this stirring in my heart, and I just want to share it with somebody, and we'll pray with you. But, but again, we can't ignore the hurt that took place. However, throughout uh, Nehemiah, as we look at his grieving, and as we look at the prayer that we're going to look at this morning, we recognize that uh, lament is sorrow rooted in hope. And the, the Israelites, they were exiled, right? The best and the brightest we talked about were pulled out of their homeland and they were brought to different countries and put in different positions, but they never lost sight of rebuilding. They never lost sight of the promises of God. So this morning we're going to take a look at the prayer that Nehemiah prayed. After that lament, after that uh, grief was expressed, he prayed a prayer to God that we're going to look at this morning. But the questions that, uh, as I skimmed through just the first chapter of Nehemiah and, my, and the beginning stages of my study, some questions that popped up were, how did the Israelites get here? These Israelites were the promised people of God. They were the ones that received a special promise of a relationship with God, a promise of land from God. And here they are, a relatively short time later, scattered all over the world. They've been exiled. Their city's been burned. How did they get here? How did they find themselves exiled and scattered? What happened to God's promise? Has God failed his people? And so I wonder, as we begin looking at the prayer this morning, reflect on your own life. Have you ever had those questions go through your mind? Have you ever questioned, where is God in your life? Have you ever questioned, has God forgotten you? Is God mad at you? Has he abandoned you? Sometimes we pray a prayer and we feel like it goes up and hits the ceiling and comes right back at us. And I've met many, many Christians over the years who uh, are afraid to acknowledge that. We're, we're supposed to come to church with our big smiles on and pretend like everything's going great, but there are times when there's a hole in our heart and we're questioning where God is. And we'll reflect on that a little bit this morning. I always look back on kind of the first memory I have maybe of considering God. It's when I was very young, my parents got me 
uh, a box set of the Bible on a record. Now, it's good there. My kids know what records are because I'm old and I still have some, but we would have had to stop and explain what records are. But I had the Bible on record, and there was kind of like a little comic book thing that you would pull out and put the record on, and you could follow the story with the comic book thing. And the thing that I remember most was that God was terrifying. He was terrifying. And so I, I remember the creation story was there, and, and, you know, and God said, let there be light. But it was this big, booming voice, and there was thunder, and it was terrifying. I was terrified of God. So my first exposure to God, my first understanding of God, was that he was scary. Have you ever noticed that God in the Old Testament seems very different from God in the New Testament? And there are times that we're reading the Old Testament and we read the New Testament and we're like, how is God schizophrenic? Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> there have actually been theologies and, and beliefs that have cropped up over the years that there are actually two gods because the God in the Old Testament seems so very different from the God of the New Testament. So how do we reconcile that? Personally, in my own life, I still struggle to understand God. I've been a Christian since I was 13 years old. I still struggle to understand God. Uh, I know that God loves me. I'm very comfortable telling everyone else that God loves you. But when I consider God's love for me, I know he loves me. As long as I'm performing, okay. We all have our hang-ups on how we understand God, and that's just one of mine. As long as I'm doing okay, I know God loves me. But when I'm not, if I'm tired... If I slip up, if my sermon was eh, then I start to think, is God mad at me? I feel like he's angry at me. Did I, you know, did I mess it up too bad this time? There's always kind of this separation in my mind between God's love and my performance. This morning we're going to look at the prayer of Nehemiah. Uh, we're in Nehemiah chapter 1, so if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 1 and stick your finger in there. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 11. And as we look at this prayer that, God, that, excuse me, that Nehemiah uttered, uh, we're going to gain insight into God's character. So we'll get a little bit of understanding of, of what God is really like. How is God in the Old Testament seem so different from the God of the New Testament? What is he like? We're going to learn a little bit about the heart posture that God desires from us as we approach him. As we reflect on that, uh, that will be individually and as a church, as we seek God in our own lives. And as we seek God as City Light Church and we seek uh, the vision that God would have for us as a church, what is the heart posture that he desires? So again, Nehemiah chapter 1 opens with Nehemiah questioning the status of the city of Jerusalem, uh, knowing that there was an attempt to rebuild the wall. And Nehemiah finds out that the wall is still in ruins, that the gates are still burned, everything is still crumbled. And it says the people that are still there are in great trouble and disgrace. And so Nehemiah weeps, and he fasts, and he prays. And in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, uh, we read a portion of it this morning, we have this beautiful, heartfelt prayer from Nehemiah to God. And I just want to read it uh, again. I know we just read it, but just so it's fresh in our minds and we kind of hear the passion that's coming through the prayer, and then we'll break it down a little bit and see uh, what's being communicated here. Nehemiah says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great an awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. 
Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Excuse me, the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then, even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. So let's break this down a little bit. I want to look kind of verse by verse at some of the things that, that Nehemiah is saying and, and how they reflect what he's going through, what Israel's going through, but also what we go through in our own lives. So the first thing in verse 5, the first part of verse 5, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. I just want to kind of point out again that as he comes to God in prayer, he's coming into God's presence, as we've talked about. He's reflecting on the fact that he's coming before the great and awesome God. Then he says, this God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And so it's interesting here, as you, especially in the Old Testament, when Old Testament saints pray to God, very often those prayers are pointing out to God promises that God has made. And so they're kind of trying to stick it to God, like, hey, you know, just a reminder, you said that you would do this for us. And since you're a God of integrity, a God of truth and, and honesty, you, you kind of have to do what you said. And so here Nehemiah is kind of doing that. He's saying, listen, I just want to remind you about the covenant of love that you made with those who love you and keep your commandments. So his prayer is based on this covenant of love. So I want to pause there and just take a real quick uh, rabbit trail. Remember we talked about the, the polytheistic world that the Bible was written in, right? The, especially the Old Testament scriptures. Almost the whole world, as we know it, all the different cultures were polytheistic, meaning there were all different gods and goddesses in that time. And they had a god of uh, fertility or goddess of fertility, typically, that would bring babies and crops. They had a god of uh, warmth, a god of cold, a god of good soil, a god of water, a god of this, a god of that. And these were all things that they needed to survive. And so in order to get what they needed, right, if they were a farmer and they needed a crop, they would have to appease this goddess of water, say, to, to bring rain down and the goddess of fertility to bring the crop up. But they weren't quite sure what this goddess was like, so they just kind of had to figure, like, I think the goddess would really appreciate this gift. And so they'll bring that sacrifice to the goddess in hopes that the goddess will see it, receive it, and bring them, in return, the rain and the, the crops that they need. But there was always kind of this guessing game. There was always kind of like, you're not sure where you stand with the gods and goddesses. And so, for myself, as I, as I grew in my uh, faith, as I grew in reading the scriptures, you see Paul talking about the law and we're no longer bound by the law and we kind of let the law go, right? And so as Christians, we tend to stick to the New Testament 
and dismiss the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, it is said, there are rabbis have said there are about 613 laws in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. 613 laws. So for myself to try to imagine living a life where I'm upholding 613 laws, I can barely do the speed limit. <laughs> to have 613 laws feels like such a burden. Like God is putting a burden on his people. But if we consider the cultural context, if we consider the fact that they are living subsistence living, in other words, their day is based upon finding enough food to survive that day, and then they worry about the same thing tomorrow. And if they're relying on gods and goddesses that they don't really fully understand, they don't know what to expect, they don't know how to get what they need from those gods and goddesses, for God to, to lay out this law and declare to them, this is who I am, this is my character, this is what I expect of you, and this is what I will give you in return. That would have been a tremendous, tremendous blessing. And so for God to reveal himself in great detail like that was a, a huge blessing to the people of Israel. It was um, completely unheard of in the ancient world for them to know their God in that way and to know the expectations in that way. The psalmist in Psalm 1 wrote, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. I always wrestled with how could they love the law? How could they thank God for that burden of 613 laws? But it's because they understood that was God revealing himself to them and revealing the expectations that he had of them. This is also one reason we need to spend time in God's word. The primary way God reveals himself to us is through his word. He reveals his character. He reveals his expectations. Uh, we talked about prayer and how the Holy Spirit's role is to bring up truth in us, right? And very often what the Spirit brings up is scripture that we've read in the past. And so the more we read the scripture, the better we know God, the more the Spirit can work in that way. In verse 5, again, Nehemiah says, The God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and who keep his commandments. So Nehemiah, again, is, is basing his prayer on the promises that God has made already. We're going to see uh, in, a, in a few minutes that verses 8 and 9, God is, or excuse me, Nehemiah is looking back on other scriptures that reveal what God has said in the past. And he's appealing to God based on the promises that he made to Moses. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not human that he should lie not a human being, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And so again, he's saying when, when God makes a promise to you, he will uphold that promise. God is a truthful God. He's an honest God. He's a God who will do what he says he's going to do. And he repeats, or excuse me, he repeatedly demonstrates that throughout scripture. So what can you expect from God what does God expect of us to live 
It's not a guessing game. God has explained it to us in the scripture. That's why it's so important that we stay in the scripture. This God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So there's a covenant of love and there's those who love him and keep his commandments. There's actually two different Hebrew words for love being used there. And I just want to explain them real quick. The covenant of love uh, is the Hebrew word. You want to say it? It's got one of those things. Chesed. Say chesed. Who did the Yeah, Mike. <laughs> chesed. Uh, and it translates to love, but it means kindness. It's favor, a good deed. It's mercy. There's a Bible dictionary that defines love as the inner quality expressed outwardly as a commitment to seek the well-being of the other through concrete acts of service. So in other words, in our culture, when we, when we fall in love, we have this emotional connection with somebody, right? But in the scripture, love is associated with acts. To love somebody is to act for them, to act for their benefit, to serve them. And so Nehemiah is referring back to this covenant of love, this covenant of kindness, God's kindness to us. And the covenant is tied up in the law, right? So when you think of God's law, do you think of kindness? Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not steal. Doesn't it, don't you have like this oppressive God in mind when you hear the law? And yet it's referred to as this covenant of kindness. The law in my head conjures up scary God. And yet Nehemiah refers to it as the covenant of love. A covenant of kindness. And that covenant, Nehemiah says, was made with those who love him and keep his commandments. That word love is ahava in Hebrew. Ahava. It means to love, to like, to be a friend. To be loved, to be a lover, an ally. Love can refer to friendship, familial love, romantic love, or covenant loyalty. And so it's, it's a slightly different idea, but what Nehemiah is referring to or, or drawing back to is the covenant of kindness that God made with the people who have covenant loyalty to God, who love God in return. We're going to watch a short video on this uh, Hebrew word, ahava, um, and hopefully it'll give us a better understanding of what covenant love means, covenant loyalty means. And then that'll kind of flesh out some of the stuff that we're going to look at in a minute with Nehemiah. Evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the third key word in this prayer, how Israel is called to love their God. But what does that mean? Love is a very common word in most languages, as it is in ancient Hebrew. It's pronounced ahava. It most basically refers to the kind of affection or care that one person shows another. It sometimes describes physical affection, like the king of Persia's love for Queen Esther. But there are other Hebrew words that more specifically refer to physical desire or sex. Ahava is more broad. 
So Abraham had Ahava for his son Isaac, that's parental love. Jonathan showed Ahava for his friend David, that would be brotherly love. In fact, a whole group of people can have Ahava for their leader, like when the Israelites showed love for their king David. Ahava can even describe loyalty between political allies, like Hiram, the king of Tyre, loved David. They had good relations, and so Hiram wanted to help David's son Solomon build the temple. These are all different kinds of affection described with the one word, Ahava. Now, all of this is helpful for understanding God's Ahava in the Old Testament. So in Deuteronomy, Moses told the Israelites, God showed affection for you. He chose you because of his Ahava for you. So God doesn't love because the Israelites earned it or deserve it. It simply originates from God's own character. He loves because he loves. This is why Jeremiah can say that God's love is everlasting. It has no end because it has no beginning. God's love just is an eternal fact of the universe. And God's love is not a duty. It's a genuine feeling and affection that God experiences. This is why the prophet Hosea compares God's love for his people to a husband's ahava for his wife or to a parent showing ahava for their child. It's one of the strongest things that God feels. But that doesn't mean that God's love is just a feeling. God's love is also an action. It's something God chooses to do. Like when Moses says, because of God's ahava for your ancestors, he brought you out of Egypt with great power. God's love isn't just a sentiment. It is something God does. And so in the Shema, Israel is called to respond to God's ahava by showing ahava in return. And just like God's love, human love is to show itself through actions. Like in Deuteronomy 10, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him and serve him and to keep his commands? All of these actions are centered around love. If I'm not doing them, I don't actually love God, I just say I do. Which leads to one last thing. In the Old Testament, I show my love for God by how I treat the people around me. In Deuteronomy, we read that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he shows ahava for the immigrants among you, giving them food and clothing. And so you also show ahava for the immigrant. So the people are to imitate God's ahava by showing ahava for others. This is the idea underneath the famous line, you shall ahava your neighbor as yourself. And so at the end of the day, all of this is rooted in God's own eternal ahava. Like we read in the New Testament letter of 1 John, we love because God first loved us. And that's the Hebrew word, ahava. So I want to read Nehemiah 1, 5, the second half of verse 5, again, kind of with these translations in mind. God who keeps his covenant of kindness with those who ahava him, or love him, and keep his commandments. Now we're going to take that understanding that we just picked up and pocket it for just a minute. Verse 6, he says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Excuse me, your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. And what we begin to hear here in his prayer is a humility, a humbleness of Nehemiah that we'll see reflected in the nation of Israel at this point. It's a heart posture of Nehemiah pleading to God, spilling out his heart to God. It's a bowing of his heart to the Lord. As we look through 
the history of the nation of Israel, you can see kind of a rise and fall of the nation as a, as a whole, but also you see from that falling point, from that time of the exile, there is a distinct humility that emerges in the nation. They approach God differently. There's a pride that was there before the exile that's no longer there after the exile. And that's what you start to see in this prayer of Nehemiah. In his humility, Nehemiah brings about confession. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. And so here Nehemiah is acknowledging that they did not live up to their end of what he talked about in verse 5. The covenant of love, which is upheld for the people who love God in return. He's acknowledging we haven't upheld our part of that bargain. We did not keep your commandments. We did not ahava, God. In verse 7, he continues, We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. And as I was studying this prayer, this is the part that became central for me. It became the centerpiece. When he says, We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses, that's referring directly back to the Shema that was mentioned in the video. The Shema is kind of like, uh, as Christians have the Lord's Prayer, the Shema was kind of like that for the Jewish people. Um, it's a prayer that's in Scripture. It's almost entirely built from Scripture that Jewish people pray usually morning and night to this day since the time of the writing of Deuteronomy. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1, it says, These are the commands, decrees, and laws. That same phrase that Nehemiah was bringing up. These are the commands, decrees, and laws that the Lord our God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you were crossing the Jordan to possess. So that was Moses about to bring about this other law, and that was kind of the introduction to the Shema prayer. But it says the commands, decrees, and laws. The short version of the Shema is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. There's kind of a short version and a long version. This is just the short one to recap everything that it says. But in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Does that sound familiar? Do you remember the story of when people were questioning Jesus and they said, Which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus' answer was the Shema. In uh, the book of Mark, it says, The most important one, answered Jesus, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Quoting directly from Deuteronomy 6, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And so here, Nehemiah in his prayer is acknowledging that we have not upheld the Shema. This prayer that we've been praying for generations, we confess that we have not upheld this. We have not had the ahava for God that we were required to. So if you remember, God took the guesswork out of what it means to please him. If you do this, there will be blessing. If you do this, there will be curses. Now here comes the scary God. If you do, if you do what I say, I will bless you. If you don't, you're going to be in trouble. There's curses that will follow. And in my scary God head, that meant that God was 
looking forward to punishing us. He was looking forward to pouncing on us and just waiting for us to miss one of the 613 laws so he could squish us. And yet Nehemiah is, again, referring back to a covenant of kindness. In verse 8, Nehemiah says, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. And the section that follows there, he refers back to the teachings of Moses, and he's pulling from different scriptures. That particular portion, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, uh, comes from Leviticus 26.33. And I want to read just a few verses before verse 33 from Leviticus 26. And tell me if this is the scary God that you think of or the God of a covenant kindness. If, in spite of this, you still do not listen to me but continue to be hostile toward me, then in my anger I will be hostile towards you. And I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols, and I will abhor you. I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste to your sanctuaries, and I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. I myself will lay waste on the land, so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. Scary God, kind God. A little bit, right? So how do we reconcile that God with a God of covenant love? And my answer is this, they are the same God. And it's difficult to reconcile the two, but they are the same God. We, especially now today in America, in evangelical churches, we love the God of love. We love the God of grace. We love the God of mercy. And if I preach the love of God and the grace and the mercy and his compassion and understanding, I will get a good sermon, Pastor. When I tell you that we will eat the flesh of our children, it doesn't go over as well. <laughs> when we are wronged, we love the God of justice. When we are oppressed, we love the God of justice. Right? We talked last week about being hurt in our own personal lives. When stuff like that happens, we love that there's a God of justice that we know will one day take vengeance on what happened. We love that God of justice. But when we are the ones doing wrong, when we are the ones hurting other people, we don't really like that scary God so much, do we? God is a God of justice. God is a God of right and wrong. And God will uphold right and will punish those who do wrong. But they are the same God. That's what we need to wrap our brains around, is they are the same God. When we seek only a God of forgiveness, only a God of forgiveness, then we are seeking an idol. We're worshiping an idol because God is a God of justice. God is a God of wrath. But that is also what makes his grace so amazing. That is also what makes his kindness, his chesed towards us, so amazing. 
his ahava towards us, as we saw in the video, that he thinks of us as his children, that he loves us deeply and doesn't just love us with an emotion, but he loves us with an emotion that's followed up by action. That's what's truly, truly amazing about God. That's what's life-changing when we get to that place where we can, in our minds, understand that God is a God of justice and that we have wronged that God, that we have sinned against that God and hurt that God. But that God is still the same God of grace and mercy and love. In 1 John 4, it was in the video also, John writes, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We express our uh, response to God's love by loving the people around us. That's what he wants. That's what the covenant of kindness is. When you look through the law, there's 613 laws. They can be a burden. A lot of them have to do with oxen falling in holes and stuff. And you're like, what does this have to do with anything? But if you look past the actual details, you'll see that almost all of it has to do with how we love God and how we love the people around us. A lot of the talk of oxen and if this ox gores this person, then you do this. That's because it's trying to, how do you deal with your neighbor when your ox just killed their cow? It's about that relationship. When we humble ourselves, we're able to elevate God. When we recognize our position before God, our low position before God, then we can bow ourselves down and we can worship God for how great he is. And we can truly not just receive the grace of God, but be immersed in the grace and love and compassion of God. To be changed, transformed, Paul says, by that love from God. And so what I see in Nehemiah's prayer is this humility that didn't exist before this time. He brings confession God promised Israel that if they were faithful to him, he would bless them. But as we see through scripture, God's blessing, what we might call success, often brings about pride. And so the greatest king that Israel had was King David, who was a man after God's own heart, he's called in scripture, right? He was faithful and obedient to God. He was not perfect, obviously. He made mistakes. He had an affair. He had a man killed. He was, he was no saint, as we would understand him but he was a man after God's own heart. He was faithful to God in terms of covenant, and God rewarded that. So David and Solomon are arguably two of the greatest kings in Scripture. Again, not perfect, but two of the greatest. But with success often comes pride. And so what you see after David and Solomon is kind of this run of kings that the Bible says are bad kings. And as I mentioned, they weren't necessarily bad as the world sees kings. So if we look at their record as kings, we might say, oh, they did a good job. They expanded this. They grew that. They had, you know, the economy was thriving. But they were not covenant faithful. The heart of Israel began to take on, look what I did. Look what I have accomplished. 
look what I've built. Look what I am doing. And the principle that we begin to see is this. God would rather have you humble than successful. God would rather you be humble than successful. And when I say success, I'm talking about as the world sees success. I'm going to give you another little glimpse into me and, and my faith journey here. Is, is My view of God has changed over the years as it does, you know, it matures and all. But I used to think God was kind of arrogant. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> I used to think God was arrogant because he would always say, you know, if you do exactly what I say, I will bless you. But if you don't, there's going to be curses. It felt like a threat. It felt like God was just trying to assert his power and authority over me instead of this covenant of kindness. I didn't see the covenant of kindness. It was like God wanted all the credit. Like if I do anything successful in my life, God wants the credit. I don't get any credit. That was where my mind was at. But God wants us to be humble and successful. He would rather us be humble than successful, but his heart is for us to be humble and successful. But what I've come to realize is that that theme of presence that I keep pointing to in the scripture, from the garden all the way through Revelation, that God wants to be present with his people. He wants to be with us. He wants to love us, to be together with us. God wants to be with you, and God wants you to be with him. That presence is what's affected by pride. Nehemiah appeals to God based on his covenant of love or his covenant of kindness. So this God, that this scary God that's in your mind, this oppressive God, this arrogant, prideful God, here the scripture says he's, a, he's issued a covenant of kindness to us. Exodus 34 says God is a jealous God. And I used to take that like God was jealous of my success, right? If I was successful, God was jealous of that, and so he would take the credit. But God is not jealous of me. God is jealous for me. God is jealous of everything that would pull me away from his presence. And that's exactly what our pride does. If we have success, and that success brings about pride and that pride begins to make us look inward, look what I've done, look what I've accomplished, and we raise ourselves up, we are turning our back on God when we do that. And so God will knock us down a peg, not just to remind us who's boss, but because he's jealous for us. The covenant of love, God is always love. God's ahava for us does not go away no matter what our performance is. And I need to constantly remind myself of that. Think back to the story of Adam and Eve when they were tempted. They started to think they knew better than God. That pride began to emerge, right? And what resulted was a separation between them and God. The presence of God was no longer right there for them. That was the result of sin. Pride works against God and against God's people by separating us from God. And so time and time again through Scripture, we see that he will bring us back to a place of humility. 
He will knock us down a peg, not because he's mad, not because he's asserting his own power over us. It's because he loves us. That's part of the covenant of love. When you do this, I will bless you. I will be with you. But if you don't, there's going to be separation. It's punishment, not in the vindictive sense. It's punishment in the sense of you punish your kids to correct them, to bring them back to you. Even God's punishment of us is an act of love, not an act of vengeance. In verse 9 of the prayer, Nehemiah continues, But if you return to me and obey my commands, again, this is all pulled from the writings of Moses, if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you are exiled people are the farthest, are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So Nehemiah again is reminding God of his promise to bless their obedience. He's reminding God of the promise of a place, a physical land where he will dwell with his people. Verse 10, he says, They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Again, looking back to their time enslaved in Egypt, reminding God, I know you love us. I've seen you redeem your people from that. And I trust that you will redeem us from this. It's an appeal to God's character that God demonstrated his ahava for his people. He demonstrated that love for his people already by redeeming them from Israel. And so Nehemiah is counting on that same Ahava to restore the nation from this exile. In verse 11, he says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Again, that, that heart posture is prostrate, prostrate before God. Prostrate, I said that. <laughs> they are laying their hearts down before God. They're expressing humility to God, recognizing that their pride got in the way, that their success made them look inward, that they as a nation stepped back from God, and that God's act of humility is, is to cut them down until they have nothing left but to look back to God for restoration. The humility that God brings about is for success. The success that God brings is for his glory. We talked about the kavod of God. When this nation became great and the world looked at them and thought, wow, look at what they're doing. Look how rich they are. Look how successful they are. And they came to Israel for advice. God wasn't content with that because it was pulling them away from him. And so he humbled them for his glory. In the scriptures, in the, in the Old Testament story, the faith of the Israelites was continuing to develop. They were continuing to learn more about God and understand God's character more and more. And up to this point, if you look at the narrative, their relationship with God seems to be very much surrounding what can God do for us. How can God take care for us? How is God going to provide for us? And then the exile came. 
the nation grew, it was successful, they gained pride. They had successful kings that were more and more prideful and less and less obedient. And so God allowed this time of exile to humble them. And after the exile, we see the whole nation is humbled before God. They've turned their attention back to God. Their hope is now firmly rooted in God because they recognize that for as great as they were, they couldn't withstand the pressures that the world was putting on them. And so their hearts are humbled before God. And if we fast forward just a short time, in that humble state, God sent Jesus to them. In that humble state of waiting on God, Jesus, the Son of God, stepped off his throne in heaven to come and free his people once and for all. God's ultimate act of Ahava, his ultimate act of love for his people, was to send his own son to deliver them from the slavery they were suffering from their own sin. And so as a church, as City Light Church, as we seek to rebuild, we need to come to God in humility. We need to have a heart position where we are laid down before the Lord and be sure that we have no pride in our hearts as we seek to rebuild. That we keep ourselves in check. I have no doubt that this church is going to have success moving forward, that we're going to grow. But when we do, we need to keep ourselves in check, that that growth is not from us. It's not from our gifting or ability. It's certainly not from my preaching. When I say things like, prostate in the middle of a sermon. <laughs> we humble ourselves. We desire success in humility. We desire success for God's kavod, for God's glory. We'll experience healing. We'll be able to use that time of healing to heal others, to lift others up, to bring them into our family here to make them feel welcome and connected and loved. And then we will grow as a church. God's kingdom in this city will grow. I firmly believe, I'm, I'm not saying this with any exaggeration, I believe that this small church can change the whole face of Wilkes-Barre City. I believe that this small group of people can change our city just by being here and being humbled and following God. So as we continue to pray, I would just encourage you, continue to pray for our church's healing. Continue to pray for humility for us. Let's, let's get ahead of God and humble ourselves now before he humbles us, right? It's a lot more fun that way. Pray for humility and pray for success, not for our sake, not for our church's sake but for the sake of this city, for the sake of God's kingdom here. Let's close with a word of prayer. Did you have a song you were prepared to sing? Okay, we're going to close in a word of prayer, and then Rebecca will come up and lead us in another song. Heavenly Father, 
Would you help us, Lord, to humble ourselves? Would you help us to remove from our hearts, from our minds, any motivation that we have other than glorifying you, other than loving you, and other than loving the people you have put around us. God, teach us what it means to to be a sinner, to be broken, to be prideful and rebellious before that scary God, before the God of justice and the God of wrath. Lord, would you allow us just a glimpse of that so that we can truly appreciate your love and your grace and your mercy towards us. God, would you bring our church healing for each individual and for us as a church body. Would you bring us healing, bring us health, so that moving forward we can minister to those who are broken and who are hurting. Would you make us effective, make us successful for your kingdom and for this city. God, help us to change the face of this city just by the way we love the people around us. And in humility, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.